0: Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's
1: show. Most of us are consequentialists in some form or other. So learning about how things work may change what we think ought to be done without threatening our more fundamental values.
0: Angus Deaton on how the U.S. economy has evolved through the years and what's now great and terrible about it. Angus Deaton is one of my favorite economists, and I don't just mean among living economists. He's an all-timer, and longtime listeners might remember that I previously interviewed Angus on the New Bazaar, along with Anne Case, who is Angus's collaborator and also his wife, and who is another favorite economist of mine. And that episode was about their now-famous work on deaths of despair, and that's the rising numbers of deaths from suicide, alcohol, and drug overdoses. And that episode was also about the shockingly wide economic gaps between Americans with college degrees and those without. Well, Angus now has a new forthcoming book called Economics in America, An Immigrant Economist Explores the Land of Inequality, The book is really great, and it's also hard to categorize, which I mean in the best possible way. It's partly a memoir about his humble origins in Scotland, where he was born, and then studying at Cambridge, and then later his decades as a Princeton University Nobel Prize-winning economist. But it's not just a memoir. It's also partly a reflection on a lifetime of practicing economics and the good and the bad of the economics profession itself. And then finally, it's part observation about the U.S. economy and really a fascinating self-analysis of his own ambivalence towards the U.S., his adopted country, the many great things here, including the lives that he and his family have led. And also, yes, some of the frustrating, intractable, devastating, grim things about life here for so many others. The book is available for pre-order, and I really strongly recommend that you get it. And I think you'll see why it deserves a wide readership after you listen to today's chat. Here it is. Angus, welcome back to The New Bazaar.
1: Thank you, Cardiff. It's wonderful to be here again.
0: Growing up in Scotland, educated there, and in England... Your father begins as a Yorkshire coal miner and you ended up getting educated on scholarship money, but in fancy settings where, you know, maybe they're not always so good at accommodating folks from low income backgrounds. So how do you think that your upbringing ended up affecting Your work later on, your approach towards economics. Tell us something about that.
1: I certainly spent a lot of time feeling alone, which is what happens if you move around isolated. If you move around from sort of one social setting to another, you know, we're always going somewhere else. And so the private school that I went to was a wonderful education, but it was not a very comfortable place to be as, you know, a kid who'd grown up in a very different atmosphere from a very different background, and so on. So Socially uncomfortable, you mean? Yeah, socially uncomfortable. So there was always this feeling for me of a tension between the academic side and the social side. And it's not like I didn't make friends. I made good friends. I still know a few of them. Um, But it was always potentially difficult. My dad was very keen on education. So, that was certainly—and he'd been deprived of it. I mean, he was kicked out of school when he was 12 or something, or 13 or whatever was the minimum leaving age then. And, you know, didn't really get to go to high school. And so, he was very keen that i be educated. My mother, on the other hand, thought this was not a very good idea. A waste of time to educate you. A waste of time by and large. She was very uncomfortable seeing me reading a book, for example— Um, she really thought men should be out doing physical labor sort of idea. She wanted you to get out of school and get put to work as quickly as possible. Well, that sort of thing. But it was more like just sitting around the house reading. She didn't think that was legitimate activity. But, you know, I learned things from her too. She was a great storyteller. And um, I think the learning the importance of that was very good for me.
0: Yeah. There's a very funny anecdote about something that happened at Cambridge, which is where you studied, where a, uh, a research assistant was asking for his wages because that's he had that job. He was a summer research assistant. And the administration there said, sorry, you can't get your wages until a later term. And he said, well, how am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to live on in the time since? And the administration responded, oh, don't worry about it. Just sell some securities. <laughs> <That's>
1: <laughs> because exactly. they're
0: so used to having just rich kids go to their school. And here was somebody who wasn't like you, somebody from a lower income background. And it seems like that tension that you described uh, is something that influenced your later work. You know, your work on inequality in particular, which has certainly been something you've you've kept up with throughout your life.
1: No, I think that's right, Cardiff the. Um, it was worse than that because he was told he couldn't be paid until Michaelmas Day, whatever the hell that was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sort of idea. And you know most of us don't live by a medieval religious ca- calendar anymore. Um, so there was this real sense and I think in that chapter I talk also about Tony Jutt's work, The Historian, who talks right. about what it was like to be at King's. Um, around that King's College, Cambridge, around that time. And there was very much this sort of clash of cultures. Yeah, You arrived into
0: the U.S. uh, 1983?
1: Yes. I was here for a year between 79 and 80, which gave me a taste of what it was like. And my first wife, Marianne, was American, so I'd spent a fair amount of time here and had a sense of what America was like.
0: Yeah, you had a sense of it, but you hadn't, You hadn't decided that you were going to uproot and move here for the long term just yet.
1: No, that's exactly right. When you did
0: move here, how did the reality match your expectations for what America would
1: be like? I think initially enormously positively. I mean, all the things that I thought I was looking for were here. So that I got paid a lot, which for me was always an issue, and I'd worried about that. and I you hope know, so. You know, I'd had a young family. I was trying to bring up two kids after their mother had died very young. Even when I went to Bristol as a professor, uh, money was always really, very tight. So coming here was really the first time I thought that constraint could not be removed, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have to worry about that so much. The other thing was that the intellectual quality of people here was just tremendous, not just in, in Princeton, but more broadly in America as a whole. So I got to hang out with some really terrific people, I mean, people I'd read and admired for a long time and who would occasionally listen to what I was saying, and I could be part of that. And I think the first substantive chapter in the book, when I talk about the minimum wage um, that Kruger and Card were doing at that time, that seemed like a very exciting place to be and a very exciting stream of work, which was really different and um, I just, just want to clarify for the listener, this is David
0: Card and Alan Krueger, colleagues of yours at Princeton, uh, who did some groundbreaking work on the minimum wage.
1: Yeah, in which they got the Nobel or which David Card got the Nobel Prize mm-hmm. for a year or two ago. Alan had died in the meantime, otherwise I'm yeah. sure he would have And you can't share. get the Nobel Prize if 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 you've already passed away. That's exactly yeah. right.
0: Yeah. It's interesting also that you mention how intellectually powerful, you know, the atmosphere was when you got here, because you also write about a lot of different ambivalences you have towards
1: America that you were surprised by. There were strands of political thought that seemed quite absent in England. Mm-hmm. i never met a real dyed-in-the-wool libertarian uh, before, oh, really? for instance. really? <laughs> You know, the people I knew in Cambridge, it was a terrible insult to call someone a Fabian socialist because that was the furthest right you could be. Oh, wow. The mainstream were Trotskyists. (laughs) Oh, my. Um, So, and I I think I tell the story somewhere in the book that when I was a graduate student or very early in my career, I read this paper in the Journal of Political Economy by George Stiegler. Um, who really was libertarian, um, saying, and I think the title is something like, Why Does the Study of Economics Make You Right-Wing? And I thought it was a typo. I never actually met a right-wing economist. <laughs> economist. Right. <laughs> so I remember reading it over and over again and reading the paper and seeing what the, how you could conceivably construct an argument because I didn't know any right-wing economists. I didn't know there were any right-wing economists. Yes.
0: Yeah, so the idea that knowing economics would— skew you in a rightward
1: direction seemed lunatic to you. Absolutely. One of the dominant figures in Cambridge at that time was Joan Robinson. I mean, someone sadly under-recognized in the profession. And i would never been able to find this quote, and I'm sure I did read it as opposed to her saying it. But she argued that American economics was an apologia for capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was pretty crazy, too at the time, um, because many of the Americans I knew and admired were not in any way (laughs) an apologia for capitalism. But I think that seems to be truer and truer and truer. And towards the end of the book, I seem to be arguing something that's not very different from that. Uh,
0: When you arrived to the U.S., I'm going to quote from your book here. Uh, You write, When I first came to the United States, I remember being roundly chided for my unprofessionalism For trying to take equity into account in my calculations, unquote. So, in other words, you were already thinking about inequality when you got here, but economists in the US
1: didn't really want to hear it, it sounds like. I think that's correct. And um, I'm not sure that was true of everyone. You know, one of the the strands of work that I was working on and that was relevant to was work that Jim Murley's had done on constructing ideal income tax systems. And the way he defined the idea, it's sort of an answer to the question people often ask. I mean, how much inequality should we have? And he came up with a solution under particular circumstances of that problem. So, I thought that was just what economists did. And he and Tony Atkinson and other people had worked on that in various dimensions. And it was not absent here. Like Peter Diamond at MIT um, had worked with Jim Merlees on those sorts of problems. So, I thought this was sort of standard thing. But when I offered talks on those, people would say, well, maybe you could talk about something else if you come to our <laughs> university. And that was the most brutal, which was a fairly senior member of the profession at mm-hmm. a meeting. And I was talking about this. And he said, That is just unprofessional. And you should not be doing that. Wow. Al Harberger always used to argue that leave that to politicians. You know, the distribution of income is a matter for politics, economists are about efficiency. And that's actually a deep line. that goes back at least to Robbins and the idea that economics is about the allocation of scarce resources. So that's our business. We keep our hands out of the poverty inequality type thing. Never made any sense to me, but um, you can see where it's coming from.
0: And yet that definition of economics as the study of how decisions are made in an environment of scarcity is one that kind of came to dominate the profession or at least the textbooks You argue for different, much broader definitions of economics. And it's something that seems deeply informed by your lifetime of work in the field.
1: I think so. Or maybe from the beginning. I mean, you know, I was the poor kid. <laughs> you know, the fact that I was poor was not part of the subject matter of economics. The fact that my dad had, had to leave school at 13, even though he was a talented, bright guy who finished up as a civil engineer, you know, why couldn't he have done better than that? And then, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and why didn't women get to participate in any of this? So there was a lot of stuff that seemed to me, and who's better qualified than economists to talk about it? Politicians may be the ones that have to decide but you know we we certainly should be talking about it how how would you love to see economics redefined well i i think let me deflect that question a little bit, okay? Because I think there's this phrase about being sandbagged by reality. I'm not entirely sure who first said that. You sort of come along with we've the, all had it done to us. Yeah. <laughs> we've all had it done to us, and that's something that seems to be happening to economics in a big way right now. So that it's clear this model we have of globalization and capitalism as practiced in America is not delivering for large numbers of people, and. And unless we just say, okay, it's their fault, which a lot of economists do say, then it's our task to do better than we've been doing and not just preach the market at people or preach globalization, because a lot of people have been hurt by that. And you know, if we don't help do something about it, they're gonna come after us with pitchforks with a ginger headed gentleman at the at the helm. (laughs) We all know who you're talking about. (laughs) I have no idea. Yeah,
0: you were also profoundly disturbed, I think, by the reaction in the late 1980s and 1990s to the work done by your colleagues on the minimum wage, your colleagues David Card and Alan Krueger. And I want to just give some very brief background for the listener who might not be familiar with this. So this was, this was uh, an attempt to study the effects of raising the minimum wage and the longstanding belief in economics was that any time you raised the minimum wage, you were going to contribute to higher unemployment because if you raise the cost of something for employers, they're going to essentially buy less of it. And what Card and Kruger found was that in the specific place where they studied it, that did not happen, that this is a more complicated story than economists to that point had realized. And at this point, looking, you know, with hindsight decades on, that research is much more widely absorbed. It is still debated. I don't want to pretend like this is a settled matter, but I think economists look at it in a much more nuanced way. But at the time when the research was being done by your colleagues, there was a fierce, often quite vicious, closed-minded reaction to it. And you seemed to have taken, like, a big lesson about the state of economics based on
1: on that reaction. No, I think that's right. I mean, Mm. it seemed to me that particular paper has got all sorts of question marks over it. But they wrote a book, which had lots of other examples, too. But to me, the thing that I was offended by was that it was clear that this was not a matter that was subject for empirical analysis, right? And that seemed to me profoundly disturbing. And there were all these analogies of people, this is like water flowing uphill, you know, this is like cold fusion. I mean this is impossible because it contradicts the theory that we believe and there's a quote I give there I think of someone who said, theory is evidence too. (laughs) meaning <laughs> it seemed ultimate confusion, but still. And there's a story I came across more recently. There's a podcast that Orly Ashenfelter has been doing with labor economists, and he did one with Jim Heckman. And Jim Heckman talks about a paper he'd written about civil rights in, I think, North Carolina. Uh, might be wrong on that. In which wages had actually been raised by legislative action of blacks relative to whites. And when he told people at Chicago what he was doing, they would have absolutely none of it. So, George Stigler said, that cannot be right. You know, he said, we know that the government could only do harm and cannot help people. And um, Gail Johnson, who was chairman of the department, went after him in exactly the same way. And, and Jim Heckman expresses, I think better than I did in the book, just this horror that there are certain subjects that are just off the table because they're settled theoretically. And so, you can't ever question them. Now, of course, that doesn't dispute the fact that in the end, you have to bring the evidence back into line with some sort of theory. And that's the story I try to tell in that part of the book, which is there's a very good theory as to how this might happen, which is involves monopsonistic power by fast food restaurants. And that has moved into the mainstream as we become much more worried about corporate exploitation and monopsony and monopoly, especially monopsony, and that these models now have a theoretical basis. And that gives a whole new... Like a new dimension in which to Dimension this which, whole yeah. thing in which you can study and look at it. And, of course, it's wonderful that John Robinson has sort of come back again as the person who invented the term monopsony and who first wrote about it.
0: Yeah. I want to just explain to the listeners also who aren't super familiar with monopsony, this is a situation where either one employer or a very small number of employers exist in a given industry. And so they have a lot of power relative to the workers. And in situations like that, they might – essentially artificially use that power to depress wages and so a higher minimum wage
1: can offset that monopsonistic power. That's exactly right. And the way to think about it is don't think about a huge employer. Think about a McDonald's out in a part of rural America where there are very few employers. Um, There may be a chicken processing plant. There may be a prison. There are a few teachers and so on. But there's not really very much to do. And so if they lower the wage below the so-called competitive market wage, And people won't quit because they really don't have anywhere else to go. Or they may have someone else, a wife or a spouse or a husband who has another job nearby. And so, it's very hard to uproot. So, then if you raise the minimum wage in that circumstance then why don't they fire people? Well, they don't fire people because they were making profit out of that worker before. Now they're still making profit, maybe a little bit less, but they've got every incentive to keep them on. And so you get the result that Cardin-Kruger had found. And many, many other people have replicated since in that raising the minimum wage doesn't do much, if anything. There's
0: a great quote that you have where you're reflecting on how the Cardin-Kruger story evolved through the decades that... I'd love to read now and then get your response Please to it do. too. Yeah. Here, here's what you write Quote What I like most about this story and the way that it has developed over the years is that it moved from name calling, no doubt entertaining, to serious science in the public interest. Instead of dismissing a finding because it contradicts what we think should happen, we need to check whether the contradiction happens elsewhere, then go back to work to think about why it might happen, not necessarily universally but under what circumstances, unquote. That more like nuanced approach to economics seems like a pretty good summary of how you approach economics.
1: Well, I, I wrote it, and I endorse it, <laughs> and I like it. Um, it has this focus on contingency, too, yes. which I think is very, very important. And it applies to a lot of economics today, all the randomized controlled trials and all the rest of it. Is it going to work generally? Under what circumstances does it work? And, you know, as I think I say there, if water's in a pipe, it can flow uphill if there's enough pressure behind it. So, you know, the fact that this is like water flowing uphill doesn't mean it's wrong, it just means you have to look at the circumstances in which water flows uphill. Maybe we'll find a way of doing cold fusion too. Who knows? Do you think that
0: too many economists have this understanding of economics as the thing that informs their values as opposed to their values influencing
1: the way they do economics? I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's right. I agree with that. And that's very much the Stigler thing, too. You know, (laughs) if you study economics, you will come right wing. And, you know, I think it may be that if, if you study economics, it changes your values. You know, so that part of the Stigler argument is not crazy. Most of us are consequentialists in some form or other. So learning about how things work may change what we think ought to be done without threatening our more fundamental values. So, I mean, foreign aid would be an example of that, where I will I will give no ground <laughs> to anyone in thinking that we owe people who are really hurting to do everything we can to help them. But that's different from saying we should pump money into their economies, for example. Mm-hmm.
0: Because in many cases, Doing that actually backfires.
1: Well, that's what I think. I mean, that's a controversial position, too. But I think there's a lot of questions. And I think that argument is being much more seriously entertained than it used to be.
0: There's a lot of philosophy in this book. There's an engagement with different philosophical approaches to not just values, but also to economics and how how your values influence economics and back and forth. And one area where you say that you've changed is that, you know, when you first started out, you were very much almost like a pure cosmopolitan. You know, there's this idea that everybody, no matter where they are, who they are in relation to you, you should strive to help everybody equally, you know, more or less to the best of your ability. And there's something quite elevated about this idea, Right. That you should think of a family member or a neighbor in the same way that you would think of uh, somebody who you've never met who's living in poverty in a different part of the world. But your views on this have evolved over the years and it has influenced your approach to economics in some really interesting ways. And I'd love to just hear more about that. Okay.
1: I, I don't think my views have changed in the, that fundamental argument. About the moral irrelevance of national boundaries (laughs) Mm -hmm. seems sort of right. So, in some abstract sense, my family members or people in Princeton, for instance, I shouldn't feel any differently about them than people in Bangladesh or people in Niger, to take a current example that I was reading about in the paper this morning. What, however, has changed my mind is, again, the political realities of this— one, a very important book for me was Rawls's Law of Peoples, which is a book that people don't read compared with the theory of justice, which just takes it as sort of axiomatic that you really can't do this. Is John Rawls, a political John Rawls, a political yeah. philosopher. And, you know, it might be that you want to do this, but people have national rights as nations to be left alone to do what they want to do, and you can't necessarily interfere or you want to be very careful <laughs> what you're doing. I think growing up in Scotland, where we always sort of feel we're a colony of England, <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, being influential here. You don't really I like want, how
0: delicately you stated that, yes.
1: <laughs> you, we don't really want English people telling us <laughs> what to do. But the, the consequence is, you know, the recent politics in America, asking ordinary people in America to give up their jobs— because people in China are poorer than they are, is an awfully big ask. And that's sort of what economists have been saying with this cosmopolitan or utilitarian view. Okay, there were a lot of jobs lost um, with globalization, but the jobs that were gained in Vietnam or India or Mexico or wherever are people who are much poorer than people in America, so the world is a better place. Well, you keep saying that, and they're going to come for you with the pitchforks again. You know, and the the Vietnamese who benefited are not going to get to vote in U.S. elections. Um, and unless you believe that these national politics are completely relevant then you have a real problem here and you have to take that into account. And politics, national politics, really does matter. I mean, you and I are American citizens, I presume you're American citizens, you know, that gives us certain obligations. We have to pay taxes here. We don't pay taxes in Mexico or in Bangladesh. When we were younger, we had an obligation to serve in the armed forces if someone asked us to do that. And Indians and Vietnamese and so on don't have that. We have an obligation which today seems very attenuated and very minimalized to help each other. When there's a disaster in one place, we send aid to that place automatically. There are automatic stabilizers in the economy, maybe pretty weak ones compared with Europe. Mm -hmm. So we're in this together. We have rights and obligations as a society which cut across this idea that borders are morally irrelevant Mm -hmm. because they're not in practice. And I think Rawls saw that very clearly. One of the points
0: you made in the book was the idea that if you don't pay enough attention in this example that you're using to the people who lose their jobs, let's say, in formerly industrialized cities and towns, that you're going to end up getting quite a strong populist backlash, which is what we got. And that the administration that's put into power or the politicians that are put into power by that populist backlash also aren't themselves likely to be cosmopolitan. and so. This approach of pure cosmopolitanism
1: ends up sort of eating itself. Right, exactly. It destroys itself. And that's when you asked me a question earlier, which I punted on, which is how should economics change, Mm -hmm. right? And so, people will say to me, well, are you arguing for tariffs? You know, are you arguing for stopping trade with China? Are you arguing how should economics accommodate that? And the answer to that is I don't know, because we've been sandbagged by reality. What we say at this moment is not going to be very important it's going to resolve itself somehow and new strains are going to come out and we're going to rethink ourselves. I mean, I've been very encouraged by what the Biden administration is doing, trying to find jobs that go do the opposite of what globalization has done. I think Anne and Mai's work had some effect on that. I mean, Janet Yellen has always been very enthusiastic supporter of our work. Cece Rouse is a very good friend and she was chairman of the council. And also this idea that somehow we don't have to have everything split by people having a college degree or not. You know, there are lots of really good jobs that could be done by people who don't necessarily have a college degree. And that we somehow managed to build a society in which social status is tied to having a four-year college degree. And that is a very poisonous place.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because this seems to be another one of the ambivalences that runs through the book. You know, globalization can do many, many wonderful things. Including
1: for me. Including for you, (laughs) including for
0: me, including for many, many people. But it does have a terrible effect on a part of the population, and we can't just ignore that. I've never heard you say— no more globalization, free trade is bad or anything like that. Nothing heretical exactly, but it's a call for a deeper understanding and to at least make our way towards a response to help make this work for everybody else. Because I agree, I don't think we should we should lose the amazing benefits of a global trading system or of immigration, but to the extent that some folks are hurt by this, we can't just turn our heads. Do you think that economists bear a big part of the blame for the fact that policymakers ended up turning their heads on that kind of thing for a while?
1: I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to make too categorical a statement. I think we went along, and in this I include myself. I mean, I think I use the phrase mea culpa Mm -hmm. um, more than once in the book. I think we were all persuaded that financial markets could look after themselves. And you know, Alan Greenspan was not the only one who was surprised <laughs> when by the financial crisis. And so I think we let ourselves be carried away. And we were too enamored of our models, of the beauties that the market can do. You know, Hayek was right. Prices do amazing things and can convey information, and that's a real miracle. But it's not the only thing that's going on. And I think what you just said, I absolutely agree with. We have to temper our respect for markets, our understanding of what markets can do, temper it by what it's actually doing to people, and not come up with glib solutions. I mean, one thing I hear all the time and it drives me nuts is people say, well, you know, we just have to pay these people compensation. (laughs) And that goes back to Nikki Kaldor, who I also knew in Cambridge back in those days, who proposed these compensation tests, as they're called, which said if the change makes some people better off and some people worse off, if the rich, the people who are better off can compensate losers is a good change. But the compensation never happens, you know. And we tried to have trade adjustment. Funds to, but nowhere, I think anywhere in the world, have the people who've been hurt by trade. Being properly compensated, even if you could. And it's not clear you can rebuild their communities or you can rebuild all sorts of other things that really matter to them. Yeah.
0: I knew I'd asked a sensitive question because when I asked it, uh, you you got visibly a little bit more, you crossed your arms, you got visibly a little more nervous. <laughs> uh, and I understand why. I'll, I'll tell you my own opinion on this, which is that everybody Watch this one. You know, sometimes I'll ask economists about this and they'll say, well, our models never said that everybody would benefit. We always said that some people would end up being losers from policy of more expansive trade and globalization. And I would say that's true, but that wasn't the part that was ever sufficiently emphasized. And that same thing applies to the media. It applies to policymakers. It applies to just about everybody, you know, industry and so forth. And I think everybody just kind of botched it for a while. And then we got the response that we got politically in the populist backlash of the last decade and a half, a lot of people were taken off guard, and I think it's because we had all sort of turned our heads. That's to me, it's a collective. Were, it's a collective. Mistake. I think
1: that's right. But there was a lot of groupthink. Um, yeah. On the other hand, there were people who were pushing that very hard, and Chicago economics and its claimed heritage with Adam Smith. Was really pushing that hard, pushing the no losers situation. Well, or just if there were, there was even if there were losers, there was nothing you could do about it. Mm. If you tried to fix things, it would make things worse. Um, A very very strong Chicago line that government. The the strongest libertarians who don't believe in government at all believe that government can only do harm. And what's more, it does so on a regular basis. So, you know, if there are monopolies, they will dissolve by themselves. This very strong line from George Stiegler that if you try to regulate people, the regulators be captured, and they'll just make things worse. Milton Friedman arguing that tax havens were a good thing because they strangled government. Distaste for public goods of any sort. There shouldn't even be national parks. So that was coming out of Chicago very loud and very strong for a long time in the 70s and 80s. And I don't think that's relevant. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us bought into that more than we wish we had.
0: Are you heartened by the more empirical turn that economics has taken in the last few decades? Was it overdue? Uh,
1: (laughs) I don't quite know how to answer that because obviously I'm an empiricist. Um, I think we should be turning to the data and I don't think we should be using theory to settle all these questions. I mean, we talked about this already with the minimum wage and I think that is important. Sure. On the other hand, I don't quite like the form in which it's taken, and I think my next book is maybe going to be about that. Well, what do you
0: mean by that? What's a what's a little uh, summary, a teaser of? Well, of what, what that
1: bothers means? me is this so-called credibility revolution, you know, which says we take causality very seriously, and that's true in a way. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you go back to an econometrics textbook up until probably the 90s, you won't find the word causality in the index. Mm-hmm. I mean, people just avoided it because it made them uncomfortable. And now they embrace it, and it should make them uncomfortable because they don't really know what it's about. I mean, philosophers have thought long and hard about causality. But that's not the point I'm trying to make. Is I think what's happened is people said, and there's a whole bunch of people, and the Cardin kruger was part of it and others following on, Orly Ashenfelter, my colleague, who's really the grandfather of all of this stuff, which is to find credible identification, meaning, how are you measuring this thing? What assumptions are going into this thing? As opposed to models which are built, all sorts of theory built in. So, I, as I write in the book, I was a great believer in that. I was very impressed by the Card Kruger work. It seemed very empirical. It was very convincing. But that credibility has been built into a lot of this work at the expense of making the answers extremely local and local in the sense that they're tied to a specific place. Now, people use the term external validity to worry about whether it will happen somewhere else, but I prefer this idea of contingency. It sort of depends on where this experiment was done or under what circumstances it was done. And we're not thinking hard enough about how that moves to other circumstances and other places. Or people look at, you know, two sets of people who are on different sides of some arbitrary rule so-called regression discontinuity design. And on either side of that, you can see, did it make a difference? But that doesn't really tell you much about what's going on with these people over here and the the people much further away from the discontinuity. Mm -hmm. It sounds like what
0: you're saying, if I can try to summarize it, is that Yes, on the one hand, you're heartened by the long overdue empirical turn in economics, but you're a little bit worried that people are extrapolating too much from it. That if we had too much theory dominance before, that the shift towards empiricism is now lacking in some of the necessary theory that helps us actually explain appropriately and accurately what's going
1: on. Exactly. And the, the monopsony story is a perfect example of that. The yeah. theory came along. If you read Cardin Kruger's book, it's all about monopsony. Mm-hmm. But people didn't take that piece of theory very seriously. And what's changed over time is a much greater suspicion of corporate behavior. Americans have become much less mobile. There's lots of evidence on this side which suggests this might be a plausible story.
0: I have a question for you about your thoughts on individualism and paternalism. There's a great passage in the book that, that made an argument that was new to me, and it's about the big tobacco settlements that were made by the states against the tobacco companies and the amount of money that the tobacco companies had to pay to the states. And what's interesting about this uh, is that the money that was used by the states ended up being sometimes used to lower property taxes. And so you had this very strange situation where the tobacco companies had to pay out all these fines, and in return, they raised their prices on their largely low-income customers. And that money that essentially was being passed on from the low-income customers who were now paying a premium to smoke cigarettes was being used to lower the property taxes of rich people. So it was a hugely regressive Transfer. Right. Right. Here's what's interesting about all this. You make the point, number one, that it's a huge regressive transfer. But number two, that, you know, economists sometimes think of something like what they call a Pagovian tax. So raising the price of something because it's a societally undesirable behavior. If you want to lower it, you raise the price of it and then people will do less of it. But you make the point that, like, a bunch of professors in MIT who design a scheme for raising prices shouldn't have the power to tell low-income folks how they, how they spend their money. So there's an interesting kind of tension there between what a lot of economists say and your sort of approach to this and your thinking on it. And, yeah, just love to hear you comment on
1: that. Yeah, I mean, you've summarized it probably better than I could. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that Anne Case and I write about in the Deaths of Despair book is the prevalence of those upward transfer schemes. We call them Sheriff of Nottingham redistribution, you know, where <laughs> the money is being taken from poor people to rich people. So, why is this settlement work for so many people? Well, it's politically acceptable because the tobacco companies don't pay anything. They just charge their— future customers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, rich people like you got the property taxes reduced, and they like that. And also, the thing that was most shocked me is making these arguments to other people like me. I mean, good liberal academics on the East Coast and mm-hmm. the West Coast, they just don't buy them at all. They say smokers deserve everything they get sort of idea. So, there was this sort of streak of punishment somehow in charging higher prices to smokers. You know, they could quit if they wanted to, and also they pollute the rest of us, so we should stop them. There's very little sympathy for smokers. Mm. And what will be interesting is to see what happens to the opioid settlement that's being negotiated right now. And, you know, once again, the consumers, the people who are dying from opioid overdoses, are all people without a college degree, you know, people like us, basically not affected by this at all. Mm -hmm. And we'll see. I mean, the sackler should certainly pay up. Yeah. But it would be nice to stop that having a component which hurt poor people. Yeah. And which it was spent on, you know, they're spending it. There are plans to spend it on rearming the police, for instance, you know, so that sort of thing.
0: The point you make is that if you're going to raise prices on low-income folks for something that they do, it should be redistributed back to them or at least put into treatment rather than putting it into lowering property taxes. But you also make the point, and this this is a really good point, which is that, like, the people who are least able to quit, something like smoking, are also typically, like, the lowest income folks. And in some of their cases, their lives are really freaking hard. So having a few smokes a day might be the one little bit of pleasure that they have and that they're able to have some control over. And you're telling them that for their own good, they have to pay more money so that property taxes can be reduced on some rich
1: people. Or maybe they could switch to fentanyl. (laughs) Yeah. Or wherein, which would be even worse. Even worse, yeah. But, you know, there's not a lot of pleasure in some of those lives. Yeah. And um, we want to be careful.
0: Based on some parts of the book, it seems like you were also really strongly influenced by the work of sociologists Catherine Eden and Luke Schaefer. They've done a lot of different things, but one of the things they've done is they've done some ethnographic studies where they go and they actually talk to people and they observe their lives directly. And they've seen some pretty horrific stuff. Uh, and I'm talking about studies that they've done in the United States, one right. of the arguments you've made is that actually at the lowest parts of the labor market, you know, the toughest parts, people who are really in deep poverty, that their lives are every bit as bad as people who are in terribly poor countries all across the world. And there's a lot of controversy on the, the data here, both that Schaefer and Eden have gone through. You stepped in it briefly for a minute uh, and you mention it in the book. Um, But even if you leave aside the data difficulties of capturing what life is really like at that lowest income, really the poorest of the poor in the U.S., we see enough examples in these reported studies to suggest that it's really, really bad in ways that maybe people who just look at, I don't know, median incomes or median wealth just don't get.
1: Yeah, another thing I got hammered for saying. Um, these are very unpopular <laughs> yeah, views that and also you've got to be doing something right when both the left and the right go after you really hard, yeah. you know. I mean the Heritage Foundation wrote a whole booklet denouncing me. And the people on the left are just appalled, you know, because they want to maintain foreign aid. And, you know, the idea that Mm -hmm. Americans are almost as poor as the people that are involuntarily using taxes to pay for in Africa is not an appealing one to them either. Um, I'd like to add Matt Desmond's name to— Sure, the author of of Evicted. Of Evicted and a new book called Poverty Mm -hmm. by America, who's done also Sterling yeah. This worries me a lot, and I don't really know the answer to this. And as I'm sure you know, there's still huge debates going on around this on the data. Whether I mean, I don't think anyone doubts that what Eden and Schaefer and Desmond have seen is for real. Right. The question is, how widespread is it? Mm-hmm. And that's a very hard thing to document because getting responses from people in that sort of distress is, is very difficult. Um, The surveys are not very good. And also, the degree of political interference is so large that we now have a situation where anyone can make up any poverty number they choose, as far as I can see. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a paper coming out very soon in which they add all Medicare and Medicaid into the resources that poor people have. And so, there are no poor people left in America, you can do that. The right regularly adds on what people pay or have paid for them for health care, which, to me, is just the world's most horrible thing because mm. we have this bloated, expensive healthcare care system, and apparently it's reducing poverty too. so it it's I find it fascinating just because it's very much in my wheelhouse of places where politics and numbers are hopelessly entangled. And, you know, you can't say—some people take a purist view and say politicians should keep out of numbers, you know, stick to your last. But you can't do that because if politicians are not interested in your numbers, your numbers are not worth having. Mm. So, they've got to be politically salient. And that's what professional— statisticians, um, government statisticians try to do, which is draw some sort of line along there which maintains credibility. But I don't think they've been very successful in that on the poverty numbers, perhaps because there was a mistake made very early on which has haunted them that they don't count benefits.
0: Let's talk about your hips, shall we? Okay. (laughs) There's a lot in the book about your hips. But it seems like your two hip replacements, which happened at two different times, roughly a decade and a half apart. Yes. But it seems like the most appalling part of the process was just the complete lack of price transparency. Uh, Amongst many other problems with our healthcare system, you got roasted by the anesthesiologist, basically, who said, hey, like two days before, sorry, if you want this surgery, which is scheduled to happen and is going to happen, you got to sign this thing. And oh, by the way, you owe an extra, I don't know how many thousands of dollars.
1: Right. And actually, I had to sign a consent form to be in an experiment as I was being wheeled into the operating theater. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's just these guys get away with this sort of stuff. And, of course, I signed. I mean, you don't want to antagonize the guy who's about to anesthetize you. It was a very—one of the things I still think about, and it's still an issue, is how do you identify—if you were to go to an economics department and try to find out who's the best person on currency— You would have no difficulty finding that out. You'd get a short list within minutes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If you try to find out from a doctor who's the best person doing this and that, you'd die trying. Who's the best hip replacement
0: surgeon, who's the best anesthesiologist, and so forth.
1: That's right. They don't know. The
0: figures are enormous, by the way. And you write, for instance, that if the U.S., adjusted for population, spent the same amount on health care... As the Swiss do, the U.S. basically spends the most on healthcare by far. Right. The Swiss are in second place. Right. If the U.S. spent the same amount adjusted for population as the Swiss, we'd save a trillion dollars. Right. That's how much added cost there are. That's not the total amount. It's the waste. Now, yeah, for for context here, a trillion dollars is one and a half times our defense budget. It's enough to almost pay off almost everybody's student loan if you want to use it for that instead. It's just a tremendous amount of money. The question I always have is, who got rich? Like where, you know, I mean, there's obviously waste, there's loss, there's things that are tough to keep track of. But like who's getting rich off of this kind of
1: absurd labyrinthine system that's been created? There's Marma? lots lots of – well, pharma, it's not a big part of the total, but the pharma executives make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so, someone's going to have to do something about that. Okay. I think it was supposedly today that the Biden administration announced which drugs they're going to negotiate the prices on. Yeah. I didn't see We're that. We're recording on August 28th, by the way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So, there's that, and I think they make a lot more money than they need to. Hospitals are a big share of the bill, mm-hmm. and hospitals are relentlessly merging, and I think they've sort of crept beneath the eye of the regulators on terms of antitrust. I think a lot of hospitals are non- so-called nonprofits, which— gives them obligations to do work in the community which in many cases they're not actually doing and i think a lot of um, but too concentrated so they can charge more than they would if we yeah. had more competitive markets and there's for really healthcare. good evidence that every time they merge the prices go up right. and then you get a doctor who started out as a doctor in a hospital finishes up as the ceo and who's being paid 10 or 15 million dollars and he's been good at merging mm-hmm. you know Um, Hospitals have this thing that you need a certificate of need to build one. So if I wanted to build another hospital, compete with the one down the road there, they would have to sign off on it, which is completely insane. Um, But you know, these are the blocks that are in our system that the hospitals and other people have been very good at exploiting. There's a new paper out of the Bureau just a couple of weeks ago. Which Bureau? Um, the National Bureau of Economic Research. Okay. Sorry, working yep. paper. <laughs> but it was written up extensively in the Washington Post and elsewhere on physician salaries. Yeah. And they make a lot of money. Yeah. And, and
0: by the way, the supply of doctors is artificially restrained.
1: They don't actually say that in the paper as far as I can see. But You uh, said it. Said <laughs> We've it. talked about it. <laughs> We've talked about it, Yeah. So, I don't know how much effect that had, but they claim that, you know, they don't earn any more than lawyers, which, you know, okay. (laughs) Um, So, there's a lot of people on that gravy train. It's also, you know, we have a lot of capacity, which other countries don't have.
0: The um, so some of it is being spent on what you might call good things, yes. right? You make the point, by the way, that in the UK, the wait for a hip replacement is like 250 days, whereas yep. you were able to make the appointment pretty quickly.
1: Anne and I, for instance, met a woman in Dublin Airport the other day who was waiting for a wheelchair along with me, mm-hmm. and she came from Northern Ireland. And she has both her hips need replaced. And she's been waiting two years so far. Oh, my God. So, that's not unknown. You'll find similar stories in Canada and so on. So, in those cheaper systems, I don't actually know about Switzerland. I don't think it's that bad. Mm -hmm. So, that's an issue. You know, we might get lower quality. But, you know, if I want an MRI this afternoon, I could go get one Mm -hmm. instead of waiting a long time to do that. We also have a much more luxurious system. So, the Princeton Hospital, which you probably passed on your way here, has only single rooms, um, for instance. National Health Service hospitals in Britain have large wards. Like you share it with a lot of people. With a lot of people. Yeah. So, I think the capacity restraints the very high prices. We pay about twice as much for pharmaceuticals as the same pharmaceuticals cost in other countries. Pharma would claim that that's, they have to get their money back for the inventing those things. Maybe that's true, but I haven't seen any very convincing estimates that are not bought and paid for by the pharma industry one yeah. way or the other. There's something
0: that drives me nuts about certain parts of help health. I mean, there's many parts that might drive me nuts, but th- there's one thing specifically that I want to talk to you about because you and I have discussed this before, but I think it's worth emphasizing here. And it's that The country had no problem exposing large swaths of manufacturing workers to global competition. And by the way, I'm quite pro-globalization. I'm not saying we shouldn't have necessarily, right? right? The policy response to that was inadequate, but I'm not saying we shouldn't have. But here's the problem. We've exposed all these like middle-class manufacturing workers to global competition. But in the healthcare sector, where salaries can be quite high, we have non-competitive markets, Like you said, in in terms of concentration, we should have more competition, okay? We should not have these artificial restraints on the number of residencies and things like that because clearly there's enough demand to accommodate more healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, and so forth. The restrictions on the ability of American patients to access global healthcare through telemedicine or through even other parts of the country, there's restrictions on that. It's kind of outrageous that we have these protectionist policies in place in the healthcare sector that we didn't have at all for other manufacturing workers or other middle-class workers. And so those middle-class workers who had their jobs outsourced sort of got it in both directions. Number one, they had more competition for their job, which lowers their employability and it lowers their wages. And they're paying higher healthcare costs because already fairly well-off professionals are getting even more well-off by a system that protects them but not the middle class.
1: I agree with that, and it's interesting though that it is—it does seem to be professionals in healthcare who are protected that way. Mm. Like academics are not protected that way, right. for example. So you look at the department here, or MIT or Harvard, a very large number of foreigners who for whom it's open. That would also be true among CEO executives. Um, I remember we all celebrated when Tony O'Reilly, who is one of Ireland's finest rugby players, became CEO of Heinz, for instance, you know. So th- th- these other things are open. It's, it's just this very protected sector. Um, it's
0: a really important
1: sector, though. It is. <laughs> it's a and, you huge know, share of national that, income. There are, what, you know, five lobbyists from – five healthcare lobbyists right. for every member of Congress? Yeah. And you don't quite get that in other things to quite the same extent. So this will, it's a very troublesome problem because it's one of these things that if it's not reformed, it's going to explode somehow. And that's not somewhere you want to be when that's happening really bad things could happen around that. And also, you know, you've got this phenomenon that life expectancies, we talked about this elsewhere, but, you know, if you look at what's happening to people with and without a BA, people without a BA, their life expectancy was falling even before COVID, whereas people with a BA, it's been rising until COVID, and then then the hit during COVID is much, much smaller for people with a BA than people without. And, you know, even in things like cancer, where there's huge progress being made, where actually saving lives, it's differentially much better for people with a BA than for people without. So this, it used to be that breast cancer mortality, as late as 1990, was higher among more educated women. Not anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's true for ovarian cancer, all this sort of thing. So even in the good things they're doing, it's very discriminatory that way.
0: One last question on healthcare, if that's okay. You go through the arguments back and forth on whether or not it is income inequality that also leads to health inequality and overall health levels. So, in mm. other words, something that makes the entire population more sick. You weren't convinced by that particular argument. You were convinced by the argument, though, that quite a lot of prevalent and legacy racism is responsible for. Uh, damaging overall health levels. And I'm just going to quote you again here. You write, put crudely, white majorities in some states do not like to pay taxes to support people who do not look like them. Racism, not income inequality, is the pollution that harms everyone's health, unquote. How'd you arrive at that conclusion?
1: Well, I spent a lot of time thinking about whether income inequality could explain this thing, you know, looking at correlations across cities and states and so on. And when you control for race, it mostly goes away. So, the big effect is just in places where there's a lot of black people, health tends Mm -hmm. to be worse. And health is worse for white people, too. And also, when there's a lot of black people, income inequality tends to be high because of the big gap. Between black and white people. So then you have a sort of story which says what looks like inequality is actually partly to do with just the compositional effect that if you have a lot of black people, average health is going to be low. But also because, you know, there's a quote of Martin Luther King's about um, Jim Crow. And they say, you know, Jim Crow, of course, was designed to keep down black people, but it was also exquisitely designed to keep down poor white people. Mm. And that's, of course, what happens. So, in places like in the South, where there's large numbers of black people, you can withhold services from everybody, including poor white people, and that hurts their health, too. So, that's my story. I'm not averse to the income inequality story, but I think this is a much bigger more important story. There's also a line of work that I don't talk about much there, which I think is interesting, that in a lot of Republican supermajority states, they're passing policies that target people's health in some way and benefit corporations, like low cigarette prices, for instance. And so that's really not helping either. And this traditional situation where the healthiest states in the U.S., where the states in the upper Midwest, they've taken a big hit. <laughs> and states like California and New York, which are very unequal, very racially mixed, ethnically mixed, used to have very low life expectancy. They're now way up there. So, you know, that's something to do with the politics. I want to turn now to a discussion
0: of economics, your lifelong profession And specifically whether economics has an exclusion problem, a problem of elitism, and not really a question of whether it has that. It does. What can be done about it and how bad is it, I should say. Um, But you make the point that there are these top five economics journals. And if you're a young economist and you want to advance in your career, it feels sometimes like you have to get published in one of those journals. And that it's okay to have, you know, some very tough standards at certain places and things like that because you want to exclude bad economic work. But actually the problem is that these journals are excluding a lot of good economic work and for very bad reasons.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I don't know what you... I, I think other professions don't have this dominance of one or two um, journals. And I think it's the major exclusion... In economics. Otherwise, it tends to be fairly open. There are not many professions in which you can be a tenured professor at Harvard when you're 26 years old. Mm. And that can happen. And also, it happens, I think, to people who don't just hew to the line. I don't think it's as bad as your summary myth. <laughs> or my okay. summary may have. May my summary uh, of your summary, right? <laughs> well, you know what I mean. I mean, yes, I, I, I think there are people who are really good and who transcend this and who go off in really different directions. So, you know, there are young economists in the profession who are the, the modern-day Card and Krugers. I mean, right. you know, people like Raj Chetty or my colleague Owen Zidar, you know, who's doing wonderful work on the measurement of wealth and income and so on. So, I think we're learning a lot that we didn't really know before. And I don't think these top journals are completely closed, but I think it would be better if they were more diverse.
0: Yeah, and you, you write something kind of interesting, too, about whether or not economics, in a sense, has a kind of machismo problem. I think a lot of people do know that there's a really bad problem of gender inequality within economics. Something that you also write, though, is that when economists sort of when they sort of label what's valid or important work, they end up favoring the kinds of fields that tend to be dominated by male economists. So macroeconomics, econometrics, economic theory, and that the fields that tend to be disproportionately represented by female economists, things like economic history, for example, uh, tend to be discounted. And this is both terrible, it's unjust, It's also kind of laughable in a way. Like we're not talking about deadlifting five hundred pounds or ultimate fighting or anything. We're talking about economics. So the idea that we're going to favor "quote unquote" macho fields is appalling. But it seems to be something that That seems to be true.
1: I think in other fields, um, someone said a lot of it was true in physics too. There was the feeling that theory is overvalued relative to experiments, Mm. and some of that is what we're seeing here. Um, sort of applied economics is less serious than macro theory. Mm. But why those should be associated with men rather than women. And there are fields like demography, which are very technical – and which have very large numbers of women in them. So this doesn't have to happen.
0: Yeah, health Um, economics, econ development, or the others that you mentioned that that a lot of female economists are doing. There's also
1: this horrible thing I don't know you've been following about the economic job rumors, job market rumors website. Yeah, this is a website that says a lot of really terrible
0: things about people, largely anonymously, and it's considered to be like one of the worst parts of the profession because the people who participate in that website our economists,
1: are, you know, largely... Not only that, a lot of them are top economists. There was a paper at the Bureau yeah. this summer showing that in the hotel where everyone's staying at the Bureau, a lot of the anonymous people were living there. Mm. Um, so these are people who were at the Bureau Summer Institute, you know, so this is not just a few unreconstructed FIFA soccer players yeah. from Spain or something. You know, this is regular members of the profession and there's huge demands of someone to do something about it. So what they did was they changed all the anonymous numbers to Nobel Prize winners. So now I appear as Deaton all over the place. Oh, on this economic job market room. Yeah. And there's a lot of demand to do something about it, but what anyone can do, I mean it it's a sort of part of In economics of what is a general problem with social media as far as I can see, I don't know how we could possibly tame that.
0: The other thing that seems terribly unfair and unjust, doesn't just seem, I think it is, um, is that certain topics have been kind of denigrated because whoever the editor of the journal happens to be at that time just doesn't want to publish anything about it. And sometimes because it might threaten whatever the editor has been up to in the past. But some topics just also are frowned upon. And I know that a number of black economists in particular who have through the years done some excellent work on, for example, racial and ethnic inequality, have said that it's very tough to get a paper about those topics published in these top journals. They, of course, are still getting them published in journals, but- you know, in these top journals that are seen as kind of like the entry point into getting a lot of recognition and advancement and so forth, they tend to reject them outright. What can be done about this other than just bringing attention to it?
1: People are conscious of this. And Jim Paterba at the National Bureau has started a group on racial economics, for instance, which meets regularly Mm -hmm. and is run by a very good economist. So maybe that will help a little bit. I don't think it's a very good idea that three of our top journals are not under professional control
0: in each what, shape or What form. does that mean? Explain that.
1: Well, I mean, if, you, if the American Economic Review, for instance, is owned by and run by the American Economic Association, so the, these professional associations are not very nimble and they're not very quick, but they meet at least once a year. The AEA executive meets a couple of times a year. And if some editor's gone crazy and is pushing all the work of his friends and so on, that editor will get removed. Or if the editor has suddenly decided he can't bear to look at any more Papers, in one occasion, hundreds and hundreds of papers were found in the trunk of someone's car. This was a long time ago, but there was very there's now much the professional societies do have control, and they have term limits and all these sort of things. So that's not always a good thing, and the negative thing is, it can enforce you know, what is going on in the profession, the trends in the profession find their way into the journals, but they would anyway, I yeah. think. Um, but the Quarterly Journal of Economics and the Journal of Political Economy, I should said three and it should be two, are, you know, house journals for Harvard and Chicago, and people are allowed to go off and do whatever they like, and they do. I worry more about, um, or maybe not more, I worry a lot about European places, where they used to have very nepotistical systems and they've tried to break that by insisting in publications in top journals so they're now it makes everywhere look like america which i'm not sure is (laughs) a good idea (laughs) right you know and traditionally i think the health of the subject has depended a lot on there being alternative schools elsewhere who were brought up in very dark places. Now, I would think that, of course, having been brought up in Cambridge. And I think those people I knew and talked to and met when I was a kid have been important for me in a way that wouldn't have been had I been a graduate student at MIT, for example.
0: In terms of your career, what, what are you proudest of having done?
1: Uh, I'd like to say the last thing. <laughs> the most recent thing you worked on? <laughs> well, there, there's some truth to that. I would like to be able to say that. I, I'm not sure... Um, discovering The Dust of Despair with Anne sitting in a cabin in Montana mm-hmm. was a pretty proud uh, moment when we discovered we couldn't believe we were seeing something that people didn't know about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that took a lot of persuading, not just of ourselves, but of other people. When I was just starting out very early on, I had this idea based on being an impoverished young father that... I'd gone to the supermarket and this was, remember, in a time when inflation was about 40% in Britain. I went to the supermarket and the coffee on which I depended had gone had like doubled in price since the last time I'd been there. And I thought, hell no, you know, I'm not going to pay that. And then it struck me that if everybody was doing that synchronously, and there was unanticipated inflation like that, it would increase the savings rate. Mm -hmm. So I went and told my colleagues and they fell around roaring with laughter (laughs) until the data showed that that was actually happening. I was very proud of that. Yeah. Well, you know, you did become an American citizen
0: in 2012. You write that some of your ambivalences that we've discussed here prevented you from doing it beforehand. And now that you've been an American citizen for more than a decade, how do you like it? What's it been like? Are Are you happy with that decision?
1: Oh, yes. Um, I didn't have to give up my British citizenship. Okay. Which <laughs> that I, made it I, I easier. <laughs> actually, actually well, I was worried that, uh, well, not worried, but that, you know, if I gave up my British, they, they wouldn't make me a knight, which was okay. nice. And my friend Oliver Hart, who got the Nobel Prize the year after me, um, did not get knighted for many years, even though that's been traditional. Right. And he thought, you know, he thought dark thoughts. Um, His father, who was a major biomedical scientist, um, Darcy Hart, did the first clinical trial for isomid, the the stuff that cures tuberculosis, along with Bradford Hill in the 30s. And there was a family tradition that he got a CBE but was never knighted. And it was seen as anti-Jewish discrimination, Mm -hmm. which there was plenty of in Britain. Um, at that time, so Oliver thought <laughs> history was repeating itself again, um, or was worried about that. I don't think he thought that, but it turns out, and I don't know whether this is true, that you know, if you go to his web page, it says he's an American citizen, and so they apparently that had caused the block, and then when that was resolved, they knighted him this year. So um, So it worked out in the end. Yeah, and I have children and grandchildren here, and I'm not about to, you know, be a foreigner all my life. And America has a lot going for it, especially if it can overcome where it is now.
0: I really should emphasize that the book includes more about what's really great about the U.S. and about economics than might have been reflected in this chat. Um, And my last question is, You are an American citizen now. You do have these somewhat ambivalent thoughts about what's happening in the country, a lot of problems, a lot of great stuff too. What are your thoughts on patriotism and what it means to be a patriotic
1: citizen? I never quite thought about it in those terms. I think patriotism in a philosophical sense is to do with accepting these responsibilities for other people. So when you become a citizen then you become a patriot, you do say you have a level of responsibility. It may not be very strong to help people. I feel more strongly about Scotland in some ways. And that's partly because Scotland's one of these countries that has this very strong patriotic thing, you mm-hmm. know. I don't know if you've ever heard the rant in the movie Train Spotting about hating the English. Um, I but, have, yes. But, <laughs> it's an amazing sort of obscene rant yes. about the, 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 you know, it's bad movie being a colony, but being colonized yep. by those guys is the worst thing there's ever been. But there there's a lot of beauty and tradition and things that come from history, Mm -hmm. which the cosmopolitans mock as blood and soil, which sounds horrible, but it's more than that. I mean, it it is, you know, it is blood and soil maybe, but that's true in America too, and America has had a remarkable history, and as I've learned more about that, I've become more attached to it and more happy to be part of it. Well, uh, we are delighted to have you. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Angus Deaton, uh, not just as a citizen of America, but also as a guest on The New Bazaar podcast. Thanks so much for being here. This was great. Thanks very much. That was fun. And that's our show for today. You can find links to Angus's new book, Economics in America, and to his earlier books, and also to his podcast appearances on The New Bazaar, in the notes for today's show. And by the way, pre-ordering a book really does matter to its sales. And since I genuinely love this book, I recommend that you pre-order it. Again, the name is Economics in America, An Immigrant Economist Explores the Land of Inequality. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice, and if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bazaaraudio.com. And we'll see you next episode.